I think there are three questions you need to ask. Is this intentional or exploratory? Intentional is certainly more concerning. Is this concentrated or not concentrated? Concentrated is absolutely more concerning. And then are these patients symptomatic or asymptomatic? And if symptomatic, obviously much more concerning. And these more concerning patients will need a GI consult for an endoscopy and close monitoring. Ross, I think you're interviewing the nicest person I've ever met in my life. She was my first ever senior resident on my first ever shift in the ED as an intern. And looking back at how dumb I was, I have no idea how she was so patient with me. I agree with all of that, Matt, especially the part about you being dumb. We were so lucky to have our guest today as our senior resident and now as an attending physician as she completes her extra training in the form of a fellowship in medical toxicology. And I'll just go ahead and let her introduce herself. I'm Alexa Kamarina Michel. I'm a current second year medical toxicology fellow at Rocky Mountain Poison and Drug Safety. I completed my emergency medicine training at Denver Health Emergency Medicine Residency. Physician training is weird, but just to quickly summarize, Alexa finished EM residency and decided to further specialize into toxicology. Usually it's the smartest ER docs who go on to do toxicology because they are bored and need a lot more of a challenge, unlike the Neanderthals like me and Ross. Ross will be doing the interviewing, so let's let him get started. I'm really excited about this talk we're going to talk about today because I feel like this is a common call and a common concern for uh, patients out there, and this is caustic ingestions. And sometimes these are accidental ingestions, usually in children, versus suicide attempts. But oftentimes we can look at the fluid that they ingested and, and have no idea what type of injury this may or may not cause. And so I think this is a great talk for us. Can you kind of lead us into this and talk about why this is important for our pre-hospital providers? The majority of caustic ingestions, as you said, will be in children under the age of six. Many of these ingestions are just lick-sip-taste ingestions that are unlikely to lead to significant caustic injury. The majority of ingestions requiring treatment will actually be in adults that are attempting suicide. So in this talk, I won't be discussing hydrogen fluoride also known as HF toxicity or button battery ingestions. These are unique agents that require a bit more of a nuanced discussion. Button battery and hydrofluoric acid are caustics, and when ingested, they are bad, B-A-D. So bad they are given their own chapters and talks outside of the general caustics discussions. Here's what you need to know, though. Transport all button battery and HF ingestions. You should also transport all HF contact burns. Quickly, the ingestion of HF causes severe burns and then crazy electrolyte derangements. These are usually fatal. Because of the shape and the poles of button batteries and them being so close together, they can heat up and that can cause erosion through the wall of the GI organs. The batteries can also just leak out their contents, which will also mess up the GI organs. So when we think about these various caustic agents, how do these ingestions lead to injury? In discussing the pathophysiology of caustics, we need to consider a few things, such as the substance's concentration, the quantity of the substance that was ingested, the pH of the substance, and then another important property to consider is something called the titratable acid or alkaline reserve, also known as the TAR. This is the volume of neutralizing substance that is required to bring the pH of a caustic substance to that of a normal esophagus. 
the TAR actually correlates better than pH in predicting esophageal injury. Generally, as the TAR increases, so does the ability to cause tissue damage. Ross, have you ever seen the movie Fight Club? Of course. Do you remember that scene where uh, Brad Pitt burns Edward Norton's hand with the acid and or whatever it is, the caustic, if you will, and then makes Ed Norton choose between the water and the vinegar to neutralize the burn? Listen, you can run water over your hand to make it worse, or look at me, or you can use vinegar to neutralize the burn. Please let me have it, please. First, you have to give up. First, you have to know, not fear, know that someday you're going to die. You don't know how this feels. It's only after we've lost everything that we're free to do anything. Uh, yeah, what's, what's your point? Well, the vinegar in this case is the neutralizing substance, and the amount of the vinegar needed to stop the hand from burning by bringing it back to a normal pH is the tar. Okay, so like one cup of vinegar versus one gallon of vinegar, and things that need one gallon of a neutralizing substance would be really, really bad. So how much quantity you need to neutralize a substance is the best predictor of how badly that substance will injure your body's tissue. Exactly. Okay. Damage occurs most often in areas of the esophagus where there is delayed passage. This delayed passage occurs at the level of the aortic arch, the left main stem bronchus, and the left atrium due to the compression of these structures on the esophagus. So as you can imagine, injuries to the esophagus at these levels can translate into injuries of these structures, which can also be very bad. And head over to the website at emspodcast.com to take a look at the show notes where we'll actually have a picture of a barium swallow study that illustrates this very concept. So I think when we think about these liquid ingestions and caustic ingestions, we often think about them in alkalized versus acids. Can you start by talking about the mechanism of injury for alkalize? Yeah, alkalize are proton acceptors. The dissociated hydroxide ion penetrates tissues and causes a liquefactive necrosis. Alkalize, such as sodium hydroxide, also known as lye, will continue to penetrate the tissue until that hydroxide ion is neutralized by tissue. There are a couple of common household alkali items to mention aside from lye. So ammonia or ammonium hydroxide is found in toilet bowl cleaners, metal cleaners, glass cleaners, hair dyes, and wax removers. Common household ammonium hydroxide contains only 3 to 10% ammonium hydroxide, which is unlikely to produce significant mucosal injury. However, you can buy more concentrated forms or industrial forms that have 28% ammonium hydroxide or more, which can certainly cause injury. Sodium hypochlorite or bleach ingestion is also a very common exposure that we see. Ingestion of normal household bleach concentrations almost never cause significant mucosal injury. But again, ingestions of even small amounts of industrial strength concentrated solutions can absolutely cause devastating injury to the esophagus. There were a lot of big words there. I warned you that these toxicologists were super smart. You don't need to know what a proton acceptor is, but that's the basic science behind acid and base flow. What you should know is that bleach, lye, and ammonia are all alkalized substances available in all homes that have the potential to do damage. What about acids? How are these affecting our esophagus? Acids are proton donors, so the hydrogen ions desiccate epithelial cells and they can produce an eschar, resulting in a coagulation necrosis. Hydrochloric acid and sulfuric acid are a couple of the acids that are found in common household products. Again, the more concentrated the solution, the more likely the patient will develop significant mucosal injury. 
Acids are also bad and available in the home too. Two recent big words worth explaining. Liquefactive necrosis, that's the type of tissue damage and death caused by those alkalis like bleach. Acids like hydrochloric acid can cause damage by causing coagulation necrosis. Both are bad, but if you had to pick, uh, liquefactive is definitely worse. If you had to name the most concerning alkali ingestion or the most concerning acid ingestion for you, what would you say? I would say that any concentrated alkali solution or concentrated acid solution would be concerning to me. I tend to think of concentrated alkali solutions as being a bit more scary than concentrated acid solutions, but that might just be from an anecdotal experience. So the big take home here then sounds like often household products are much more dilute and less likely to cause injury. And really, if you see any sort of industrial products or online purchase products, you should be a little more concerned. So how are we going to treat these during transport on the ambulance or on scene? In these situations, it is really important to determine the intent of the patient. So remember that intentional overdoses of any of these agents are much more likely to be dangerous just because of the pure quantity and potentially concentration of the solution. Also, it is really important to determine what material was ingested. So if paramedics are able to bring the bottle of the ingested material in, that is extremely helpful to us. You can also look up the ingredients that are within a substance on the safety data sheet online, or you can call the poison center. This is huge. The safety data sheet or the material safety data sheet, sometimes these are abbreviated MSDS or SDS, are so helpful. I had a paramedic bring copies of the MSDS with her to the ER the other day, and I wanted to have her skip medical school and get a spot in our residency program immediately. Yeah, bringing any information you have with you is always extremely helpful. If you can't bring the bottles, it's still super helpful if you take a picture of the bottle's label and ingredients on your phone and bring it with you. Ross, did you know that I was a medic before most phones had cameras and uh, agencies would have to buy digital cameras for each truck? <laughs> Wow. And again, it's just incredibly important to determine the concentration of the substance if you are able. Great plug for knowing your local poison center's phone number and having that saved in your cell phone beforehand because they can be a phenomenal resource for any toxicologic ingestion, but specifically caustic injections as you try to figure out the severity of, of the substance that they ingested. Are there any signs or symptoms that can tip us off or clue us to possible mucosal injury? So looking for signs and symptoms of mucosal injury, such as oral mucosal ulcerations, oropharyngeal swelling, difficulty swallowing, difficulty breathing, chest discomfort, or abdominal pain, those can be helpful clues. And if we see some of these signs of mucosal injury, how are we going to treat these patients? Treatment is ultimately going to be supportive. And most importantly, we should not try to make these patients vomit. In fact, vomiting is quite bad and it can cause additional injury. These patients should be given antiemetics if they are nauseated and vomiting. As with all patients, certainly assess these patients' ability to maintain their airways is extremely important. So during transport on scene, our primary goal as pre-hospital providers are going to be supportive treatment and transport to the hospital. What are we gonna do once these patients get to the hospital? 
So many of these patients are ultimately going to require endoscopy to determine whether or not mucosal injury has taken place. Endoscopy is where the GI specialist put a camera down the throat into the esophagus and look for the injury and how bad it is. Endoscopy should be performed within a 12 to 24 hour period. There are numerous classification systems for esophageal burns, but I often use the following. Based on endoscopic visualization, grade one esophageal burns result in hyperemia or edema of the mucosa. Grade 2A esophageal burns result in submucosal lesions, ulcers, exudates that are not circumferential. Grade 2B esophageal burns are submucosal lesions, ulcers, exudates that are near circumferential. And grade 3 esophageal burns are deep ulcers and necrosis into periesophageal tissues. Burns of the esophagus persist for up to eight weeks, and severe burns such as our grade 3 burns often result in esophageal shortening and progressive narrowing of the esophageal lumen. Esophageal stricture forms over weeks to months after the initial insult. And moreover, those who develop severe mucosal injury have a 1,000-fold risk of developing adenocarcinoma of the esophagus. Also, keep in mind that patients with severe mucosal injury with esophageal perforation will often need surgical management. These people can get really sick, and even if they don't look sick to you, they can have badness for up to two months out from the time of ingestion. So along these lines, are there any other special ingestions of caustic substances that may have special considerations for injuries outside of just esophageal injuries? That makes me think of hydrogen peroxide. Like other caustic agents, it is more detrimental at higher concentrations. Common household hydrogen peroxide comes in solutions of around 3%, which can cause some mucosal irritation. However, the more concentrated hydrogen peroxide solutions that are also known as food-grade hydrogen peroxide have concentrations of 30 to 40%. In addition to being a caustic agent, concentrated hydrogen peroxide can cause oxygen gas emboli formation. In fact, one adult sip of concentrated Hydrogen peroxide solution contains 100 mLs of oxygen gas. So as you can imagine, gas emboli can wreak a lot of havoc and can cause tissue ischemia from vascular occlusion. Wow, that's fascinating. How are these going to be treated in the hospital? So oftentimes these patients will be treated with hyperbaric therapy. And the idea behind this is that this compression therapy will allow for increased concentrations of oxygen to be dissolved in the blood and thereby reduce the chance of oxygen gas formation. And similar to other caustic ingestions, these patients may require a scope to look for esophageal injury. If these patients are an extremis, then we would recommend placing a right IJ central line and aspirating the air embolus while the patient is in Trendelenburg. I have never done that. <laughs> Seems pretty cowboy. Yeah. That's fascinating. And, and to emphasize that, that's going to be a right internal jugular central line. So different from our normal external jugular or EJs that we do on the ambulance. All right. Summarize all this information for us and take us home. So first and foremost, please do not hesitate to call your regional poison center for more guidance if it is needed. So ultimately, it is important to know whether these patients have an intentional or an exploratory ingestion. So if these are if this is an intentional ingestion, then the patient will likely need a GI consult for scope and then also close monitoring. 
It is also important to know whether or not these patients ingested a concentrated or a not concentrated solution. If the patient ingested a concentrated solution, then they will need a GI consult for scope and close monitoring. And then it is also important to recognize whether or not a patient is symptomatic or asymptomatic. If a patient is symptomatic, then they will need GI consult for scope and close monitoring. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Ross is about to ask Alexa to break this down into an easy stepwise approach. This is super simple and an amazing summary. Pay attention. All right. Can you break down a kind of simple approach to these patients for us? Yeah, I think there are three questions you need to ask. Is this intentional or exploratory? Intentional is certainly more concerning. Is this concentrated or not concentrated? Concentrated is absolutely more concerning. And then are these patients symptomatic or asymptomatic? And if symptomatic, obviously much more concerning. And these more concerning patients will need a GI consult for an endoscopy and close monitoring. Go ahead.